The Athletic. Good morning, welcome to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. It's Tuesday the 5th of September, I'm Tim Spears and on the show today... Jordan Henderson speaks to The Athletic about his controversial transfer to the Saudi Pro League. This interview was, in essence, his opportunity to say his version of what happened, to explain his decisions. Who can stop Manchester City winning the title this season? At the moment, they don't look like they've got that strength in depth on the bench. And are Dortmund in crisis? They whistled and waved away. It was extraordinary. It's not something you see very often in Germany. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Tim Spears. Jordan Henderson has defended his controversial move to Saudi Arabia after leaving Liverpool this summer, saying he's been hurt by the criticism he's received. Henderson joined Aletifak, managed by former teammate Steven Gerrard, in July, ending a 12-year stay at Anfield. Given Henderson's public support from the LGBTQ plus community, with his wearing of rainbow armbands and laces, he received condemnation for moving to a country where same-sex relationships are illegal. Speaking exclusively to The Athletic, Henderson said he understands the frustration felt and that the last thing he would want to do was upset anyone from the LGBTQ plus community. Henderson also spoke about his tough Liverpool exit, accusations he only went for the money and about representing the Saudi League in a wide-ranging interview with David Ornstein and Adam Crafton. And it's Adam who joins us now. Adam, this is a fascinating piece. From what Henderson said to you, what really stood out? There was quite a lot of conversation about why he felt that he the time was right for him to leave Liverpool. And, you know, if you read the piece, you'll... You'll see that you know he, he. It was made clear to him. He says by the Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp that his game time would be pretty significantly reduced. He felt he was at a point in his career where he wanted to be happy and playing and feeling valued and wanted. You know he stopped short of saying Liverpool forced him out of the club. I think it was more a case of I think if someone had come up to him and said, "Look, we'd really, really like you to stay," then he then he says he would have stayed. But that conversation he says, didn't happen. And then you get into, okay, well, if you're leaving Liverpool, why, you know, a team in Saudi Arabia that, you know, let's face it, it's not even, you know, Al Nasser or Al Hilal or Al Etihad who have been, you know, one. Of, it's not one of those teams that was taken over by the Saudi Public Investment Fund earlier this year, that, you know, those clubs where you've had players like Cristiano Ronaldo and Sadio Mane and some of the really big names of world football. I mean, th- this one is a slightly more modest project, although, you know, they have spent plenty of their own. And, and I suppose that's where, you know, we got into the questions about, you know, did he go for just for money? How much did he um and ah about, you know, the fact he'd previously been probably one of the most foremost advocates of the LGBT community during his time in English football? you know, and how conflicting, if at all, that that was for him as he weighed up this move to a country where life is extremely difficult uh, for LGBT plus people in terms of the legislation and social attitudes. Do you get the sense that he, it was a difficult decision for him and there's part of him that feels guilty about it? Or is this just all part of the PR game? Jordan Henderson answered every question we asked. There was no copy approval or vetting of questions or anything like that. We were with him for over an hour talking. So, you know, I'd like to think it was a it was a pretty open and 
genuine conversation. You know, he gave his answers. He was pretty robust at times. We went back to him and traded, not arguments, but you know, it was it was a it was a proper a proper discussion, a proper conversation. Some people, I think, will continue to not like his answers. Some people will have a lot of time for him because they'll see, you know, that he was, I suppose, brave enough to go out there and answer questions and take the questions, which is a lot more than most people who have gone to Saudi this summer have felt the need to do. And then people will, I suppose, read it and make their minds up. Do you get the sense, Adam, that he that he gets it, that he gets why people may feel his reputation, his standing in the English game has been tarnished and he gets why he's been singled out for, for more criticism than others for, for going and taking the Saudi money? Yeah, look, and, but it's not, it's not just, it's not us who are saying that he's being tarnished. You know, you have people like uh, Liverpool icon Graham Sooner saying that to go to Saudi would damage his legacy. You have the England Three Lions supporters group basically coming out and saying they're going to turn their backs when he walks onto the pitch in the way that they perceive him to have turned their back, turned his back on, on the cause. I mean, it's pretty damning, startling stuff. And he said, I think I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, he said he understands the anger, he understands the frustration. His view is that, and it's you know, it's an argument we've heard before from people that you know that the only way you can maybe change things over time is by engaging. And he feels that by him being there with his values and beliefs being known, that that can in some way bring, you know, some evolution in in this topic. You know, he kept saying, you know, the importance of respecting the culture of Saudi Arabia, religion in Saudi Arabia. We went back and, and said that there's a really interesting discussion to be had around what do you mean by culture, right? He listened and it was a really, really good conversation. David Ornstein, obviously, there as well. And then we also moved on, you know, to, to, I suppose, more trivial matters, things like, though they won't be trivial to Liverpool fans, things like his perceptions of the owners of Liverpool Football Club, FSG, who at times have received a lot of criticism. He was asked around Mo Salah, you know, and whether he thinks that he could go to Saudi Arabia as well. And, and also spoke about his ambitions for England, right? Because I think a big part of him actually doing this interview was because he's back here for international duty and clearly there was going to be a renewed focus on him because of the move he's made to Saudi Arabia. And I think he wanted to address a lot of these issues in a decent setting and, and take those questions and, and I suppose see what people make of it. Head to The Athletic to read our interview with Henderson in full. We have a limited time deal of £1 or $1 a month for 12 months. Head to theathletic.com slash briefing to find out more. You're listening to the Daily Football Briefing from The Athletic. Henderson was one of more than 10 Premier League players to move to Saudi Arabia this summer, and there could be more before Thursday's Saudi transfer deadline. Two of those summer departures came from Manchester City in Amaric Laporte and Riyad Mahrez, and while City's start to the defence of their Premier League title has been perfect so far, with four wins from four, their lack of squad depth is a potential flaw which could give hope to their rivals. That's what our Manchester City expert Sam Lee has written about on The Athletic today, pointing out that City have let five players go, signed four to replace them, and could be reliant on a lack of injuries this season. Sam joins us now to discuss that and the failed exit of Carl Walker, who did look set to join Bayern Munich, but is now signing a new contract at the Etihad instead. Sam, 
100% record for City so far. Many, many are going to see them as unstoppable again this season. Your piece suggests the only team that may be able to stop them is Manchester City? Yeah, well, Arsenal could stop them, Liverpool could stop them, but there is an element of City maybe stopping themselves. That's the big debate among the fan base at the moment. There's Well, there's plenty of City fans who think they, they've been weaker. To basically sum it up, for games last season, and these were like big Champions League games, they would have Mares, Foden, Alvarez on the bench now this season. And if you look at the Newcastle game, because they've had a few injuries, on the bench they had McAtee and he's gone on loan. Peroni, he's gone on loan. Palmer, he's left. Gomez, who doesn't play an awful lot either. Phillips isn't going to play. And that's a, you know, that's a Guardiola thing. So they don't have a massive, massive squad. And some of the players that they brought in, as much as they offer new characteristics, at the moment, they don't look like they've got that strength in depth on the bench to change a game. Four games in, as we said, four wins. How do you assess their performances so far? The performances so far have been all right. But the thing is, the most important context, and this is something that the coaching staff have been saying, is they knew that the games before the international break were going to be tough because pre-season preparations weren't ideal. They started later than everyone else. They had a couple of friendlies. They couldn't train properly in Asia. I was over there. It was really hot, really super hot. They couldn't really train too much. So they expected the start of the season to be a bit tough. And that having said that, they've won all four games anyway. I thought they were great against Newcastle. Against Sheffield United, I thought they were very good and they deserved to win my more than two goals to one. Funnily enough, against Fulham at the weekend, I thought they were awful in the first half. But then they, they got it together and won 5-1 anyway. So, yeah, there's been ups and downs there, but you can't really complain. Uh, we all thought that Kyle Walker would be off this summer, but he's now set to sign a new contract. How close did he come to leaving for Bayern, Sam? And why didn't that happen in the end? Yeah, well, Walker said himself at the weekend in the mix zone, it was close, he admitted it. Uh, we, I mean, we knew that, we reported that all summer. I think he was very keen on it at the start. But again, as he says, it just came down to who could offer him the most football. He didn't think he was going to get that at City. He was very flattered by the idea of going to Bayern. The fact that a top European club would still want somebody at the age of 32, that doesn't normally happen too often. And he was seduced by the idea of going, especially because he thought he wasn't going to play much at City. But then City's window panned out, how it panned out with them losing players or the threat of losing players. Guardiola made a big push to try and keep him and persuaded him that he would play lots of football. They offered him two new contracts. He kind of rejected the first one, said he was going to Bayern. Then he accepted the second one because ultimately he loves playing for City. Now he knows he can still keep playing for City. He's got more money out of it, more than he would have earned at Bayern. He's going to get the same length of contract that he would have got at Bayern. That's until 2026. So he's done very well out of this summer in fairness, but it does sound like he might have played them a bit, but he, he genuinely was very open to that Bayern move. But because obviously he's very happy at City and likes City, and now he knows he's going to be playing at City, it was a bit of a no-brainer to stay, I suppose. A year ago, City narrowly beat Borussia Dortmund with a late 2-1 win in the Champions League. But you feel if the sides met now, the outcome would be much more conclusive. Dortmund are having a tough time of it. On Friday night, a desperately disappointing draw at home to Minos Heidenheim, playing in the Bundesliga for the first time in their history, was met with hostility from the Westfalen Stadion. Dortmund's fiercely loyal ultras whistled the players off the field and star player Julian Brandt called the team sloppy and inconsistent. Edin Terzic's side are actually unbeaten after three games, but performances have been awful. They've drawn with Bochum, they've narrowly beaten FC Köln, and it doesn't look like they're anywhere near capable of pushing Bayern Munich like they did last season. 
Seb Stafford-Bloor has written about this for The Athletic, and he joins me now. Seb, the mood is ugly, you wrote in your piece. Are Dortmund a club in disarray? It's a mess, Tim. It really is a mess. I think heading into this season, everybody expected there to be a bit of a hangover, given the trauma of last year and how narrowly they missed out on the title. But the standard of performance has been shocking. So too the local mood, because you mentioned the whistling. Usually after Bundesliga games, there's sort of a moment of unity between fans and players where the result is almost secondary. Everybody recognises the effort. The players recognise the, the contribution of the ultras. When the Dortmund players approached the yellow wall at the end of that game against Heidenheim, which was desperate and I guess had it gone on for another 10 minutes, they might have lost it. They whistled and waved away. It was extraordinary. It's not something you see very often in Germany. So uh, I wouldn't describe the atmosphere as quite mutinous, but it's certainly approaching that. I guess you've had stars like Haaland and Sancho and Bellingham really taking the focus and, and lifting the team in the past few years. Did those players perhaps mask wider issues at the club that we're really starting to see now? Yeah, I think so. If you if you go back to sort of if you go back to Jurgen Klopp's time at the club, also Thomas Tuchel's, the system was the hero, right? So everybody loved Dortmund for their football. In the years since, with a few exceptions and with a few brief periods where things were quite cohesive, the team has been led by star power and rather than have a kind of a collective tactical definition, it's been driven by the performances of, as you say, an Erling Haaland, a Jaden Sancho, a Jude Bellingham most recently. But then that hasn't been quite the Dortmund identity that we're used to. And naturally, because Dortmund are still very much a selling club, it's a very temporary situation if you're reliant on players of extraordinary ability, but they're not going to be with you for a decade. That's quite perilous. And this seems to be a little bit of a, a junction in, in Dortmund's modern history because there isn't anyone of that nature in this team anymore. And, and also, even some of the younger players who, going back two or three years ago, someone like Gio Reyna perhaps, players who people were excited by, they're still destined to become very good players, but perhaps they're not quite in the exceptional category that they once might have been. And so that's pretty worrying. Right, TV time. We're in that horrible purgatory between the domestic season pausing and the international football starting. So there are literally no matches on TV tonight, not even Cambridge v Reading. Therefore, our official daily football briefing advice is to go out and enjoy the sunshine while it still lasts. Okay, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I've been Tim Spears. Your producer was Abby Patterson and your executive producer was Ian McIntosh. If this was your first daily football briefing experience, then please press that follow button on your podcast app and leave us a lovely review. Michael Bailey will be here tomorrow. Enjoy your day. The Athletic.